the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the mash That's the great Bobby Boris Pickett singing his hit, The Monster Mash, which as we all know is a song about a song, that song being The Monster Mash. Hello and welcome to episode 107, a spooktacular Halloween edition of The Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspard. This episode of the podcast explores some classic horror films with two experts in their respective fields, who also happen to be friends of mine. They each assigned me some films to watch and rewatch on their respective topics, Frankenstein and Dracula. Don Brody, podcaster, historian, and stand-up comedian, knows Frankenstein from the inside out, having played author Mary Shelley in a touring show for years. And Brian Forrest, a writer, director, and producer, has forged a second identity as a blogger and vlogger on all things vampiric. Don gave me 4.5 films to revisit. The 1931 version of Frankenstein, Frankenweenie, the feature and the short, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and Young Frankenstein. Meanwhile, Brian assigned me the original Nosferatu, the 1931 Dracula, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, Dracula in Istanbul, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. But first, a little background on my guests. Before we dive into the assignment you gave me, which was to watch stuff I hadn't seen and also rewatch stuff I had seen to get a better idea of who's done a good job of adapting these books, let's just jump in and talk a little bit about your area of expertise and why you have it. So I'm going to start with you, Brian. I was very surprised after working with you a while to find out that you had a whole vampire subset in your life a, a where, problem you can call it a problem okay it's fine. It's a, why where what is the problem and where did it come from i i was just vaguely interested in vampires for a while i when, when i was in my screenwriting days someone had encouraged me to do a feature-length comedy about vampires and that led me to do a lot of reading and then i just kind of put it aside for a while and then i was i had just finished a documentary for committee films and they said do you have any other pitches and I thought, and I said, you know, there's still people who believe in vampires, even today. That could be really interesting. And I put together a pitch package. The The guy in charge of development says, this is what we need to be doing. And then it stalled out. Uh, nothing ever happened with it. And I said, what the hell with this? I could, I could do this on my own. I could fly around and interview these people. And I did. I spent a couple years interviewing academics and some writers. And along the way, I started finding all these very intriguing moments in the history of either vampire lore or fiction or uh, or even just people who consider themselves vampires today and all these things would would connect to each other it was it was a it was a lattice work of vampires going back hundreds of years and it didn't fit the documentary unfortunately but i found it way too interesting and i said i need some kind of outlet for this and so i started writing about it on toothpickings and that eventually put me in touch with people who were more scholarly and it opened up a lot more conversations and uh, now I can't get out I'm trapped <laughs> well There's the no first the first sign is recognizing there's a problem no. <laughs> okay now Don you had a, yeah. a different entryway into Frankenstein yeah well I was a, a theater major and a history minor at the University of Minnesota 
go go first. And uh, you know, it, this was this was in the late two th- or the late nineties, early two thousands, when there were still like a lot of jobs for people who had degrees and things like this, or at least there was a theory that like this was a reasonable thing to get educated in. And then I graduated in two thousand one which was like like months after 9-11 when all those jobs mm. went away. And so it really was like I had this education so specific. <laughs> and what was I going to do? And, and gratefully, the Twin Cities is a great place for finding that kind of stuff. And one of my very first jobs out of college was at the Bakken Museum. So the, the Bakken Museum was founded by Earl Bakken, who is the inventor of the battery-operated pacemaker. And he has always, since childhood, been obsessed with the Frankenstein movie that came out in 1931. And he attributes his great scientific invention and many others to a science fiction in general and to the spark of the idea that comes from sources like this. So when he opened the museum, he insisted that there be a grand Frankenstein exhibit. And that means going back to the book. And that meant going back to the author, Mary Shelley, who wrote the novel Frankenstein. She started writing it when she was 16. And so I was hired because, boom, look at me, my degrees suddenly colliding, right? So I was hired by the Bakken Museum to create a one-woman show about the life of Mary Shelley, where I would play Mary Shelley and would perform it within the museum and elsewhere. And through the course of that research, I've read the novel for the second time, but then I read it for my third, fourth, fifth, onwards and upwards, because the show was about 45 minutes long. I referenced, you know, the the novel, the books, the popular culture, the science behind it, and uh, the, the deep dive just never stopped. And so long after I was required to do the research and the show was done and up, I um, just kept reading and, and, it, and it gave me the opportunity to meet experts in this field and the peripheral fields as I would sort of travel with the show and be an ambassador for the museum and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it still curls my toes. Chris. All right. So with, with that background, I'm going to just be honest right here and say I've read uh, Dracula once, I've read Frankenstein once. So that's what I'm coming at from, and both a while ago. I remember Frankenstein was a little tougher to get through. Dracula had a bit more of an adventure feel to it, but something I don't think has really been captured particularly well in all the movies. But they both have lasted and lasted and lasted. Why do you think those books are still, uh, those ideas are still as popular today? Um, Well, I I will say that I think... Frankenstein, it depends on what you mean by the idea, because on the on the surface, just uh, the idea of bringing the dead to life is, I mean, the Walking Dead franchise is to this right now, one of the most popular franchise. I mean, we are, I think we are really pivot on this idea. And I remember saying to a friend once that um, the part in Revelation where the dead rise is like the only part of the Bible that I don't question. <laughs> it's like, oh, the dead will get up. <laughs> You know, we always just seem to be real sure that at some damn point they're they're getting up, and and so I think that that is part of why it sticks in our brains. But then the story around Frankenstein, as it, especially as it was written in 1818, has so many universal and timeless themes like ambition, and what is right and wrong. And the question that Jurassic Park posed in 1995 and continues to, po- 1993, around there, uh, and continues to pose, which is, just because science is capable of doing something, should it do something? And how do we define progress? Surely the very idea of being able to beat death and not die seems to be kind of the ultimate goal. And here is the someone saying, okay, so let's just say, yeah, we beat death. 
and everyone goes, oh shit, <laughs> that'd be terrible, <laughs> you know. And then also, I, I, I always love the idea of the creature, the monster, Frankenstein's creature himself, who has a lot of um, characteristics with which people have identified throughout history. Some people say, for example, that Mary Shelley's whole purpose for writing Frankenstein was a question of God. And didn't God do this to us, make mm -hmm. us these ugly creatures that are imperfect and bumbling around and horrifying? And then once he realized that we weren't perfect, he fled from us in fear, you know, or fled. So there's, I mean, it just keeps going. And every generation has a new media that tells the story a little bit better, a little bit different. And yeah. there we are. Yeah, uh, I will say that the, the for me, the most memorable part of the book was the section where the monster is the narrator and is mm. learning and I think with the exception of Kenneth Branagh's film it it's something it isn't really touched on that much it's a little bit in Bride of Frankenstein of him going around and learning stuff but the mm -hmm. the the sort of uh, moral questions that he raises as he's learning what it is to be human are, are very interesting in the book and I wish they were in more of the movies but they're not mm -hmm. I guess so Brian on Dracula again we have dead coming to life. Why, why do we love that well, so much? It's one of the questions that made me want to make a film about it myself was why has the vampire been so fascinating for hundreds of years? Why does it keep coming back? You know, it ebbs and flows in popularity, but it never leaves. And it keeps seeming to have renaissance after renaissance. Dracula specifically, I think one of the interesting things about that novel is how many different lenses you can look at it through and not be wrong. People have looked at it through the lens of, is this thing a uh, imperialist story? Is it an anti-imperialist story? Is it a feminist story? Is it an anti-feminist story? <laughs> and you can find support for any of those views reading Dracula. And I think that some of it might be accidental. Some, there's times where Dracula is catching up to whatever the cultural zeitgeist is right now. And we look at Dracula and we see, oh, hey, he was thinking about this back then. Or maybe Bram Stoker was just very confused and had a lot of different <laughs> ideas. Yeah. All right, well, let's explore that a little deeper. You each gave me an assignment of some movies to watch or to rewatch that you felt uh, were worth talking about in, in relation to your subject of Frankenstein or Dracula. I'm going to start with Frankenweenie just because Yay. I had not seen it before. And in going through it, I was reminded, of course, as one would be of watching Frank and Winnie, I was reminded of Love Actually because oh. I came to the realization after years of Love Actually being around that it, Love Actually is not a romantic comedy. It is all romantic comedies all put into one movie. And Frank and Winnie is all horror films yes. uh, condensed beautifully and cleverly into one very tasty souffle. He was a great dog. A great friend. The best dog a kid could have. When you lose someone you love, they never really leave you. They just move into a special place in your heart. I don't want him in my heart. I want him here with me. I know. If we could bring him back, we would. Your dog is alive! <laughs> I can fix that. I stopped at a certain point making note of the references to other horror films just because there are so many of them but the idea that it references everything from Bride of Frankenstein to Gremlins <laughs> is uh, they do a rat transformation that's right out of American Werewolf in London the fact that they have a science teacher played 
by Martin Landau doing the voice he did as Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood. I mean, it is, it's a really good story that they just layered and layered and layered and layered. And yeah. Layered. What was it about that movie that so captivated you, Don? Well, so much of what you just said, and also it seems to me the epitome of the accessibility of the story of Frankenstein. The idea that if anyone can think of any moment in which if I could bring someone back to life. But what I love about it too is that the novel Frankenstein, that is not Victor Frankenstein's motivation. It it generally tends to be the motivation of almost every character, including the Kenneth Branagh character at some point he, when Elizabeth dies his wife dies for the second time he says yes I'm going to try to bring her back but it is so not the motivation of the scientist in the book it is just ambition he just wants to do something no one else has done and lots of people die around him and he really never ever says to himself at any point in the novel I wish I could bring them back I'm going to bring them back he just that's never that's never part of it he just he just wants to be impressive and so I love that that it starts with that pure motivation of wanting to bring the dead to life uh, just wanting to bring your dog back so that it's so accessible for everyone watching it who wouldn't want to try this but then like even in that scene with the with the teacher when he shows the um frog and he's demonstrating that in if you touch a dead frog with electricity its legs shoot up which give the kid the first idea of bringing his dog back which is like a deep cut in in the sense that that's nothing uh, mary shelley herself and uh her friends were watching experiments exactly like that before she wrote the book. Galvanism and animal magnetism were these really popular public demonstrations happening in London and elsewhere, where they would do just that, but because electricity itself was so new, I mean, it blew people's hairs ba- hair back. <laughs> you know, that these dead frogs were flopping around. It was the craziest thing, and a, and a lot of them were thinking to themselves, surely, it is only a matter of time mm-hmm. before the right amount of, before we can, this is what's, we're gonna have our dead uh, walking around all the time, so it was so circulating and so forward. So. It's not just movie references, and, it, and it's not just Frankenstein references. That movie really includes source, deep source references for how Frankenstein came to be, and I just love it. Which brings me to Frankenstein, the 1931 version, in which Colin Clive has a similar point of view to what you were talking about from the book, in that he doesn't really, he just wants, you know, he wants to be God. It's alive. What I was most impressed with about that movie, well, a couple things, was it starts. It's like, boom, we're in it. First scene. There, there's no preamble. There's no going to college. There's no talking about it. Right. It's like they're starting in the middle of act two. And I think a lot of what we think of when it comes to Frankenstein, comes from that movie, that the stuff that James Whale and his cinematographer came up with and the way they made things look. And that's sort of what people think of, of when they think of Frankenstein. Now, as you look back on that movie, what are your thoughts on the, what we'll call the original Frankenstein? Yeah, well, I love it. I'm, I'm, you'll find with me and Frankenstein that I'm like, I am, I'm not a purist. Like, I love everything. Like, I have no boundaries. I think this is great. One of the things that that 1931 movie did was answer... It, because it had to. Anytime you take a novel and make it a movie, you take a take a literary medium and make it a visual medium, there's obviously going to be things that you just have to interpret that the author left for you to make for yourself individual. And in this instance, that individual is the cinematographer. So we're going to get their take on this, you know. And one of the real ambiguous things that Mary Shelley leaves for you in the novel is the spark of life. What is the spark of life? She does not in any detail 
describe lightning or static or any of the recognizable or, or future developments of how electricity would have been. I was and shocked that, when I first read that book and saw how little <laughs> space was devoted to that, that lab scene. It's blink of an eye and it's over. I gathered the instruments of life around me that mm -hmm. I may infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. Period. <laughs> you know, and I just, what I love is what I love about film in general is that they went, oh, spark of being, all right, girl. It's a dark and stormy night. And, you know, and there's chains and there's bubblers and there's a thing and the sky open. I mean, God bless you. Like, way to just take that thought make it vivid make it build a set make us believe it and it's so so pervasive that in frank and weenie uh you know which of course is about the frank like that is one that they do that he's got the white robe that ties in the back and the gloves i mean he real they really take and in young frankenstein it's the you know that lab scene and so i love that and the and the other thing that they had to do was describe the look of the creature make the creature frankenstein's monster himself look so like something because she similarly in the novel says that he is taller than a regular man has dark hair and yellow watery eyes that's all we know about what the frankenstein looks like and so in that 1931 boris caught with the bolts Mm -hmm. And it's black and white, remember? We don't think his skin is green. I don't, you know, that he turned green at some point is kind of exciting. But of course, he was just gray. But just dead flesh, uh, you know, rotten, dead walking flesh is what's frightening. And uh, I, just th I just thought that the movie did that so well. I think the makeup was kind of a green gray. And that when color photos came out of it, that's why someone went, uh, oh, it's green. Th but it wasn't to say, I, I thought I saw a museum piece of you know, an actual makeup bit that Jack Pierce did. And I thought it was greenish. Yeah. Greenish gray. I think, the, yeah, the rot, just kind of trying yeah. to capture the sort of rotten flesh. It's Just like uh, the bride's hair was red. Uh, that's oh. right. That's right. Mm -hmm. We actually, I work right now, my day job here in Los Angeles is as a street improviser at Universal Studios Hollywood. And two of their most treasured characters, of course, are Frankenstein and Dracula. Mm -hmm. So while most people might separate them, John, they are usually arm in arm <laughs> where I work every day. <laughs> and the bride has recently come back to the theme park as a walking character, okay. and they gave her red hair. That's excellent. We, we, don't, we don't mess around. <laughs> excellent. But you mentioned Dracula. Let's jump into the 1931 Dracula. There's a connection point between the two that I want to mention, which is the amazing Dwight Fry, mm -hmm. who is Fritz, I believe, in Frankenstein. And I'm not the first one to mention uh, his naturalistic acting, kind of putting him above everybody else in that movie. Famously, when he's running up the stairs, uh, stopping to pull his socks up at one point, he's just really, really good in that. And then you see him in Dracula as the essentially the Harker character. I think he's called Harker. In yeah. that. They, well, he's, he's Renfield in Dracula. They, they, they merged those two characters. It, I thought it was a smart move for a first attempt at the film. Yeah. And Dwight Fry's in a lot of, he's in a lot of other universal horrors too, Dwight he Fry. Is. Often doesn't get the credit. He somehow was not the leading man he should have been. I don't know why that is. He turns up again as an assistant in Bride of Frankenstein. He's a townsperson in um, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And then he uh, tragically died 
uh, on a bus ride to an auto parts job that he took because um, he wasn't getting any acting work, which mm. is too bad. Uh, yeah, really, really good, good actor. There is another intersection, besides the fact that they were both produced by uh, Junior. Lagosi was put into the short, uh, the, the, the trial film they shot for Frankenstein. I, I, can't, I can't call it a short film because it was never intended for release, but they, they shot a cinematic test reel. And they had Lugosi play the monster. But he was under a sheet the whole time. I think he may have been able to pull the sheet off. It's a lost film. We don't know for sure. We just have kind of the recollections of a few crew people. I've never heard of that. I would love to see that. I would too. I think a lot of people would really love to see it. But it was it was as much a kind of a, a testing ground for Lugosi, with, whether they wanted him to be the monster, as it was for some of the techniques, the, the things they wanted to try in the film. And what I understand is that the producers saw the test you and they said, yes, we love this look. You're, this is the look we want you to give us. And it's whatever version of Lugosi not getting that part you want to believe, whether Lugosi turned it down or the producers didn't like him or something. But he ended up not taking that part. But he is, of course, always known as Dracula. So what, what are your thoughts on their adaptation, which, again, is not the first adaptation, but is kind of the first official yeah, the first to bear the name Dracula. Although, well, I'll back up a second, uh, because some releases of Nosferatu really? called it Dracula. He would be named as Dracula in the subtitles, you know, because that's an okay. easy thing to do in a silent yeah. film, is you can just swap that out however you want to. But yes, uh, the first, uh, you know, authorized official Well, let's back up to Nosferatu adaptation. just for a second. Am I wrong in sure. remembering that the Bram Stoker estate, Mrs. Stoker, sued Nosferatu and asked all prints to be destroyed, and they were, except one print uh, remains somewhere? Close. That is that is the popular story that she sued Prana Films. She won the lawsuit. All films were set to be destroyed. Now, there's a guy named Lockie Heiss and a few others who've been doing some research on this, and they will tell you that there's no proof that a single print was ever destroyed. Oh. It's a more fun story to say that, you know, this one was snuck away and now we have the film, but there was no real enforcement mechanism for having all the theaters destroy the film. What would, who was going to go around and check and see if they actually destroyed this film or not? Nobody. Right. So maybe some people destroyed it. Maybe Prana Films destroyed their remaining copies, but the exhibitors kept all of theirs. And there's different versions and different cuts that have been found. So we know that some of these reels went out in different formats or in uh, with different subtitles or even mm -hmm. different edits. And some of them have made their way back to us. There's some really iconic, striking imagery in that movie. Oh, yeah. That, that haunts me still. What I always tell people is see the film with a good live accompaniment mm -hmm. because that still makes it hold up as a scary mm. film. If you see a good orchestra playing... Mm something really intense when Orlok comes through that door. Oh, it feels goodness. scary. Yeah, out of the and you can And you can, you can feel yourself being uh, teleported back to 1922 and being one of those audience people, seeing that and being struck by it. Mm. What do you think it would be like to have seen that or Don to have seen the original Frankenstein? I mean, I can't really imagine, given all that we've seen in our lives, if you put yourself back into 1931... Yeah. And Boris Karloff walks backwards into mm. the lab. Mm. Uh, I, I would just love to know what that felt yeah. like the first time. You know what is so great is I was uh, fortunate enough to know Earl Bakken, who saw the movie in the theater in Columbia Heights, Minnesota, when he was 10 years old. And he went, he had to sneak in. People, people would run out of, this, uh, out of the theater screaming. I mean, when they would do the close-up of Frankenstein's monster's face, mm -hmm. he the people would just 
you know, women would faint. And, and of course, that was publicized and much circulated. But it was also true. People were freaking out. And for Earl Bach and this young kid, the fear was overwhelming, as you said. And there was also in this theater, I was lucky enough, I did a one, I did my show in that theater for Earl and his friends on his 81st birthday. So I got to hear a lot of these stories and be, and, and they played the organ in the front of oh, the curtain. Is this the Heights the Theater? Yeah. The Heights Theater? Oh, that's an amazing yes. space. Amazing. So they played the organ in there and it was like, oh my God. And it was, it was so overwhelming. So I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I was really fortunate to have a moment to be able to sort of immerse myself in that question. What would it have been like to be in this theater? And it was moving and it was scary, man. And yeah, to, to your point, Brian, the music and the score, I mean, it was, it was overwhelming. Also, I think there's something that we still benefit from today, which is when people tell you going in, this might be way too much for you you know this mm -hmm. might be this might scare you to death so yeah. just be super super careful and your heart's already you know and it does have and, that warning right at the beginning yeah versus now when people sit you yeah. down they're like uh i'm not going to be scared by this black and white movie from 1931 and then you find yourself shuffling out of the bathroom at top speed in the middle of the night and you're like well look at that it got yeah. me that reminds me there was a deleted scene from the 1931 dracula that uh, was a holdover from the stage play where Van Helsing comes out and he breaks the fourth wall and he speaks directly to the audience. And he says something to the effect of, I'm very much a paraphrase, about how we hope you haven't been too frightened by what you've seen tonight, but just remember, these things are real. And then blackout. And oh. they cut that because they were afraid that they were really going to freak out their audience. It's like a War of the Worlds thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's Oh, that's so great. I love that. I am Dracula. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. So, Brian, what is your assessment of the 1931 version uh, as a movie itself and as, a, as an adaptation? of Stoker's work. The, the things they had to do to try to adapt it to film, which uh, they borrowed a lot of that from the stage play, borrowed it, they, they took from the stage play, they, they used the stage play as their guide point. And I think they made the best choices they could have been expected to make. You know, there's a lot of things that get lost and that's unfortunate, but I think they did a, a decent job. I don't find the 1931 version scary. I like Bela Lugosi, I think he's a great Dracula, I think he set the standard. With the possible exception of the scene where the brides are stalking Harker slash Renfield, I don't think the imagery is particularly frightening. The Spanish version, I think, does a little bit better job. And you know the story with the Spanish version and the English version. We actually talk about it on the Backlot tour of Universal oh, okay. Studios because they shot on the same sets. That's in right. In some cases, yeah. Um, I, I, my understanding is uh, Dracula shot during the day and Spanish Dracula would shoot at night. That's right, um, yeah. So they got to benefit maybe a little bit by seeing, okay, how is this going to be shot? How did Todd Browning do it? Okay, we're going to do it a little bit differently. 
it's it's a little a bit of a cheat to say they move the camera a, they do move the camera a lot more in the Spanish version but the performances are a little bit different I'm gonna I, I can't get her name out um, the actress who plays the ingenue in the Spanish Dracula I'm not gonna try it but you can see her kind of getting more and more crazed Mm-hmm. as time goes on and, and her head is more infected by Dracula. You see uh, these push-ins that you don't see in the English version. There's blocking that's different. And I put together a short course where I was just talking about how they blocked the staircase scene, the welcome to my house, the walking children of through the night, the spider web and how it's blocked very differently yeah. in the two versions. And what does that say? What, is, what are these two directors communicating differently to us? And one, uh, Harker slash Renfield is next to Dracula, and one, he's trailing behind him. And one, we cut away from the spider web before he goes through, and the other one, we see him wrestle with it. That's not really what you asked, John. Uh, Sorry, I got off on a tear there. I agree with you on all points on the differences between the two films, although I, I, I do think that all the Transylvania stuff in the English version, uh, the Transylvania stuff is terrific The, the with the coach and, and uh, the brides. The Spanish version, the biggest problem I have is their Dracula uh, looks ridiculous. He's not Bela Lugosi. You're right. He looks like Steve Carell doing Dracula. <laughs> and there is no moment, literally no moment, where he is scary. Whereas Lugosi is able to pull that off. There's a lot of people who have observed that the Spanish Dracula would be a superior film were it not for Bela Lugosi being such an amazing Dracula in the English mm. version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He really, really nailed. And since he learned his lines phonetically, he could have done the Spanish Dracula. Right, right. Just write it out for him phonetically, because he didn't speak English very well back then. If we could just go back, you know, there's a lot of things in history we could change, but if we could just be at that meeting and go, hey, why not have Bela do it? That's a great idea. Okay, so then let's jump ahead, still in, in Dracula form, to uh, Horror of Dracula from 1958. Yes. With Christopher Lee as Dracula and Peter Cushing uh, as Van Helsing. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. Please try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? For some people, Lee is the ultimate Dracula, and I think that's a generational thing. I think he's great. He's, he, I mean, he's got the stage presence, and I love Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. I don't like the film as a whole. It feels like I'm watching a play with a camera set back. It doesn't work for me the way it works for other people. That is personal taste. Don't come after me. It does, however, have... Uh, one of the greatest, hey, we're going to kill Dracula scenes ever with Peter Cushing running down the table and jumping up and pulling down the drapes in the sun. Oh, hitting. right. Interesting because in Dracula, the book, the sun is not deadly remotely. Really? But that's, that's, uh, that's the influence of Nosferatu being pasted onto the Dracula canon that the sunlight is deadly to Dracula. I remember having this fight very enthusiastically in the 90s with when Bram Stoker's Winona Ryder uh, Dracula came out. And I was like, um, it was already sort of a literary nerd. And they were like, he, they have a scene with him walking around during mm-hmm. the day. And I was like, yeah, nerds. That's right. That's because vampires can walk around during the day. You know, like I, I was very uh, already like 
You don't know anything. Go back That's to right. your history. And there's a yeah. 70s version where he he's out on a cloudy day, mm-hmm. but he's not hurt either. There, there's suggestions in the book that he's more powerful at night, but certainly not... Weak. He's a creature of the night, so yes. that like like I always understood he had to wear sunglasses. He was sort of like a wolf, like they show him a wolf during the day. It can happen, but it's not yeah. great. I like the way they did it in the Gary Oldman version. He's he's suited up. He's got the sunglasses yes. on. There's not a whole lot of skin exposed, but yeah. he's not gonna turn up in smoke. Well, okay, let's talk about that version uh, and Kenneth Branagh's version of Frankenstein because. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil anything here when I say it doesn't sound like Don cared for it. This is one. You, okay, you open this You open this can of worms, John. Sit down for a second. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to sit down. Listen, he calls it Mary Shelley's fucking Frankenstein. I inserted the fucking. I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to say that. You can say he that. He calls it. He calls it. How dare you, Kenneth Branagh, call this Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? So that was A number one. But I went into it all excited. It's Kenneth Branagh. Love him. He calls it Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And he starts with the ship captain out at sea, just like the book. And so I pull up my little you know, security blanket. And I'm like, oh, Kenneth Branagh, do this to me, buddy. Do it to me, buddy. Show me Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as a movie. And then he just fucks it up, John. And he doesn't actually do that at all. It's a total lie. He screws up every monologue. He makes up motivations and then heightens them. And the hu- I mean, and it's bad. The acting is capital B, capital A, capital D, across the board everybody sucks in this movie it looks bad the direction is bad and it has nothing to do he tries to bring elizabeth back to life this is a huge departure from mary shelley's frankenstein thank you very much mr Branagh. i that's all i have to say for now (laughs) all right i was fooled by the fact that he started at at the north pole i was that's because he's tricking us that's because it's the whole movie is a lie okay then with that same mindset what do we think of Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola? I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm I'm afraid that I don't have I don't have I can't match Don's intensity in either respect. Um, except I thought De Niro was really good in Frankenstein, but that's no, you know. he's not. You're wrong. Your opinion is valid and wrong. <laughs> I'm kidding. For listeners who don't know me, I am I am kidding, of course. Everybody's opinion is valid, except for that one. Yeah. The movie, everything about that movie is bad. <laughs> he is, I think, miscast, because uh, he can't not yeah. be and, De Niro. And, uh, Helena Bonham Carter is one of the finest actresses of not just our generation, but of all time, and she sucks in this movie. All right, so, <laughs> all right. Um, so Bram Stoker's Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracul. There is a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. Met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. Also produced by Brana, and I assume that that is the connection why they both start with the author's name. I always call it Coppola's Dracula because it gets too confusing to make that distinction. I thought it was a decent movie, but it didn't feel like Dracula. It felt like someone who had heard of Dracula 
and wrote a good script based on what they had heard. So many divergences that bothered me. Although I think it's aged better than it felt the first time I saw it. Uh, I remember seeing it when it first came out in the 90s and not thinking much of it. And I think audiences agreed with me. And it seems like it's been kinder. Uh, the audiences have been kinder to it as it's gotten older. Okay, Don, you love it. I loved it. I loved it. It, You know what, though? That was one of those movies that, unlike unlike Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I, I can't look at with like an adult critical eye. Because I, what year did it come out? Was it like 94? 92. 92. I'm pretty sure, so, I'm like middle school getting into high school and like Winona Ryder was everything. Vampires are everything. I mean, Gary Oldman is the, is a great actor and I I, I was very, very, and the, it's so sexy. Very sexy. The sex is primo. And so I remember loving it. Very moving. I don't remember comparing it as certainly not as viciously to the novel because I read Dracula after I had seen the movie. And so there's always that inherent casting where Nina is always going to be Winona Ryder. But I I do remember really loving the gothic convention of the letter and that the movie did seem to utilize uh, and to great effect uh, how letter writing can build suspense and give us different perspectives in a in a unique cinematic way. The two or three biggest stakes that film puts in the ground are not to be found in the book. So there's no love story in the book. There's no mm. uh, Vlad Tepish in the book. Can I interject there? Isn't that basically... Didn't they just rip that off of Dark Shadows? Which with, part? Uh, the idea of my long lost love is reincarnated in this woman and I must connect with that her. That is again. a good question, John. I'm glad you asked that because I call it the doppelganger love interest, right? We first see that the first time I know of it happening, I'm sure there's an earlier precedent is in The Mummy. But then Dark Shadows does it. But yeah. that's not where Stoker, I mean, that's not where Coppola and a screenwriter claim to have gotten the idea. They claim to have gotten it from Dan Curtis's Dracula in 74. Dan Curtis, who produced Dark Shadows with Barnabas Collins falling in love with his reincarnated love. But Dan Curtis's Dracula comes out two years after Blackula that has a reincarnated looking love interest. Not only does Blackula have a reincarnated love interest, but if I'm remembering the movie correctly, at the end when she says... I don't want to go with you. He goes, okay. And he's ready to go home. He's like, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, no. In uh, Blackula? Yeah. Doesn't he No, no, no. He commits suicide. Oh, that's it. Yeah. He walks out into the sun. That was so he it. goes he, he goes home in a different way. He goes home. Yes, exactly. Yes. He's uh, one of my favorite Draculas is the very stately William Marshall, who's just... Yeah, absolutely. I That is uh, a favorite of mine. I... Anyway, you were saying stakes in the ground from Coppola's Dracula. Well, the, the love story... The equating Dracula with Vlad Tepish, the Vlad the Impaler, and I, I felt like they did Lucy really bad in that movie. Um, yeah, they they had her turn into a wanton harlot, which is not in keeping with the book. And that's some things are okay, but they they really said these are the building blocks of our story, and that bugged me. But Anthony Hopkins, I liked so all right. <laughs> <laughs> but see, this was my my like. The itch that still that still makes me want to scratch, though, is why say Bram Stoker's Dracula? Why say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? I mean, I because I think you heard the venom. Obviously, if they took Mary Shelley's name off that thing, you can make Frankenweenie. 
Mm-hmm. And I will love, like, I love Frankenweenie and all kind. Do your Frankenstein homage all day, all the time. But when you call, when you say it's Bram Stoker, I think that this is what has been frustrating historians like me and getting high school students D's in English class <laughs> ever since. Because it just creates the false perception that you've basically read the book. Right? Right. Or that you, if you know the thing, you know the book. And it's just, I, it, and it's a, a cheap ploy, and I don't like it. I think, and somebody correct me on this, that there, there had been a plan to do a reboot the Universal Monster franchise, and these two movies were supposed to be the reboot of it. And then they would have then done H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. and uh, Oh, well, The Mummy killed it. But they've they've tried the mummy to, did bad. They've tried to reboot it several times, and that was the first attempt. Mm-hmm. Were those Dark movies. Universe? Tom Cruise. Yeah. Someone yeah. I, I heard that called the Dark Universe. They were trying yeah. to do their own MCU. Yeah. Well, and I can just from kind of the surface at, at Universal Studios, there is of course in in LA in general, there's the property wars. You know, what, what's who has what, and sometimes those get really blurred. Like, why does Universal Studios have Harry Potter? when we can like see Warner Brothers mm-hmm. <laughs> from from the top of our wall. And that's obviously a clever, you know, those things. Happen. But when it comes to like the IP or intellectual property, those original monsters are so valuable and they always are at Halloween. And then it's like sort of how can we capitalize on this? And, yeah. and it's cross-generational. Only, all they really own right now is the look, right? They they own Jack Pierce's makeup job from Frankenstein, but they can't lay claim I think to Frankenstein that, no, anymore. No, and I th- I think that that's exactly the point is is the de- the delusion of what is it that you own if you own you know Frankenstein whatever. But yes, there was definitely an interest to sort of revamp all of the original Universal monsters they call them, right. and it's the Mummy, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Invisible Man. It's everybody who shows the cr- up the in creature. the in the Mad Monster Party. Exactly. Mad. Mad. But yeah, The Mummy uh, starring Tom Cruise was a tremendous flop, and I think that sort of took the wind out of everybody's sails. Let me ask you this, Don. If Mel Brooks had titled his movie Mary Shelley's Young Frankenstein instead of Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, would you have a problem with that? (laughs) Yeah, no, but no, I would not have had a problem. (laughs) Because that would have been irony and juxtaposition. You're right. Not just a straight lie. You're right. You're right. So that brings us to some comedies. Young Frankenstein Mm -hmm. and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which I was very surprised and a little unnerved to realize a few years back. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was made a mere 10 years before I was born. And I had always assumed it was way back then. And it's like, no, it wasn't all that way back then. It was pretty, pretty recently. That happened to me when I realized that Woodstock was only six years before my birth. And it always seemed like ancient history. Yeah. Is that a common thing, Madam Historian, that people kind of forget how recent things were? Oh, yeah. Remember Roe v. Wade? Oh, yeah. Oh. Sorry. Too soon. We're recording Um, recording this on that day. uh, Yeah. uh, No, I... Yes. The the question, do I... Do I find that is true? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it happens to everybody so much faster than you think it's going to. I remember looking around in the 90s, feeling like... Well, surely the 70s 
was ancient history. And real, you know, because they had that 70s show debuted as the, like a period piece, yeah. you know. And I am still very young and hip and happening. And they are in production for that 90s show right now. And I said to my husband, that 90s show, I was like, Jesus, that t- I guess I, I said, I guess that's 20 years. Because I was like, in the 90s, they did that 70s show. And he goes, no, baby, that's 30 years. And I was like, I'm sorry. I said, I'm sorry, what? He goes, the 90s was 30 years ago. And I just had to sit down and put my bunion corrector back on because these, <laughs> these feet are killing me. All right. Well, let's just talk about these two comedies. And then there's a couple other things I want to quickly hit on. What are our thoughts on, uh, let's start with Young Frankenstein. It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo! Kill the monster! Storm the castle! I'm Spidey! Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. Yes, I think we could all use a good laugh. But don't see it alone. Don't miss Young Frankenstein, personally directed by Mel Blazing Saddles Brooks in black and white. No offense. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sort of a, I, I told you I'm not an idealist and I'm not a purist about Frankenstein, but I am an enthusiast. So that is why I told you to watch Kenneth Branagh's movie, even though I hate it so much. And that is also why uh, I love Young Frankenstein, because I think that it is often what brings people into the story. Mm-hmm. For many, many people, it introduces them to the creature. They may know literally nothing about Frankenstein except for young Frankenstein. And that's actually fine with me because I'm a comedian myself and I believe that parody is high honor. (laughs) And often when you parody and satirize something, especially when you do it well, it's because you went to the heart of it because you got right in there into the nuggets and the creases of it. And there is something about young Frankenstein, as ridiculous as it is, that has some of that wildness and the hilarity and the putting on the Ritz. Uh, I did know that there, uh, I find out kind of from my Universal Studios uh, movie history stuff that that scene was very nearly cut out. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, that Mel Brooks did not like it. And he just didn't like that they were doing it. And of course, it's the one, I, I feel like I'm not the only one who still has to like make sure that my beverage is not only out of my esophagus, but like aside when they start doing it. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? And I understand they were about to throw away the sets from the Mm. 31 Frankenstein when Mel Brooks or his production designer came up and said, stop, stop, we want to use these. And they were able to get the original sets or at least the set pieces. I know they I didn't know that. No, I believe what it was was they got Ken Strickfadden's original machines. Kenneth Strickfadden okay. had created all that stuff for the 1931 version and had been used on and off, you know, through all the Frankenstein films and it was all sitting in his garage. And the production designer Dale Hennessy went out to look at it because they were thinking they had to recreate it and he said, "I think it still works." And they plugged them in and they all still worked. Oh wow. Oh okay. man. So those It's were, alive. Yeah, it's live. Those are the, origi- the original machines. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. And, I, you know, I, at the time, when I was a young kid, I was one of the few kids in my neighborhood who knew the name Ken Strickfadden, which opened doors for me. Let, you, let me tell you, when people find out, oh, you know the guy who designed and built all those? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I know all that. One of my favorite stories about uh, Young Frankenstein is when they sold the script and 
the I forget which studio had said yes. And as they were walking out of the meeting, Mel Brooks turned back and said, oh, by the way, it's going to be in black and white and kept going. And they like followed him down the hall and said, no, it can't be in black and white. And he said, no, it's not going to work unless it's in black and white. And they said, well, we're not going to do it. And they had a deal. They were ready to go. And he Ooh. said, no, it's going to stay black and white. And he called up Alan Ladd Jr. that night, who was a friend of his, and said, they won't do it. And he said, I'll do it. And so it ended up going, I think, to Fox, uh, who oh. was more than happy to, to spend the money on that. And even though Mel didn't like putting on the Ritz, it's weird because he has almost always or always had musical numbers in his films. Uh, virtually mm. every movie he's done, he's either written a song for or there's a song in it. So it's weird to me that he, well, I, you know, I've, I've heard Gene Wilder on YouTube talk about, no, no, he didn't want that scene at all, it's, which is so odd because it seems so. I never thought about that, but you're right. I'm going in my head through all the Mel Brooks films I can remember, and there is at least a, a short musical interlude yep. on all of them that I can think of. But let's talk then about uh, what's considered one of the best mixes of uh, horror and comedy, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. No! The nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello. Petrified, but hilariously. <laughs> Plus the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman, Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. Plus the most dreaded creature of them all, the Frankenstein monster, played by Glenn Strange, in the spookiest laugh fest on record. As with comedies of that age, it, it starts off slow, but then it starts to get very funny as time goes on. And it's all the comedy is because of Abbott and Costello. Yeah. They are the, the chemistry they have on screen i don't know how much of that was actually scripted and how much of it was just how they rolled with each other but it works really well not not much of the comedy is provided by the monsters or the supporting cast or even there's there's maybe a cute a few sight gags but when you yes. say when you say most of the comedy is it's uh, the, just the dynamics between them it is the the scary stuff is scary and it's balanced beautifully at the end where they're being chased to the castle the monsters stay pretty focused on being monsters and Abbott and Costello's reactions are, are what's funny if I may if I may as someone who has already admitted I haven't seen much of the movie it feels to me like uh, it may be something like Shaun of the Dead in the yeah. sense that the the it you get genuinely scared if, if zombie movies scares scare you then you'll have that same adrenaline rush and the monsters stay scary they don't have to get silly or do exactly. be a part of the comedy for your two very opposing ones skinny ones fat you know yep. and the way that their friendship is both uh, aligning and coinciding is the humor i, I believe there is one brief shot in there where you see you get to see dracula frankenstein's monster and the wolfman all in the same shot and i think that might oh. be the only time that ever happens in the universal franchise oh I think during the during the lab scene does that sound it right, is John? yes i believe I think you really only have Dracula and the Wolfman. I'll have to look it up because the monster is over on another table, and there isn't the... he. Isn't he underneath the blanket? And they're like, nope. That's that's Blue Costello. 
on uh, because it's his brain that they want and so they're fighting over right, right, that table right. and then just a little I have nothing but stupid fun facts there's a point in it in that scene where the monster gets off the table and picks up someone uh, and throws him through a window and Glenn Strange who was playing the monster at that point and who is one of my favorite portrayers of the monster oddly enough had broken his ankle I believe and so Lon Chaney Jr. put the makeup on and did that one stunt for them because uh, he was well, as, there he, was he right did there. that as Frankenstein's monster yes, monster. yes Frankenstein's I didn't monster. know that yes I did not know that so he plays both of those roles yes. in that movie and I will I will. let me just take a moment to defend Glenn Strange uh, who played the monster three times House of Dracula House of Frankenstein and Abbott and Castell meet Frankenstein in House of Frankenstein he is following up the film before that which was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in which in this very convoluted universe uh, Lugosi is playing the monster even though he didn't want to do it in 31 because his brain in Ghost of Frankenstein had been put into the monster's body so in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman it is Lugosi as the Frankenstein monster it is Lon Chaney Jr. who had played the monster in Ghost of Frankenstein now back to playing Larry Talbot so it is Wolfman versus Frankenstein and the premise of the script was he's got Igor's brain it's not connecting properly he's gone blind they shot that they had tons of dialogue between the two characters of Larry Talbot pre-Wolfman and the monster Bela Lugosi and the executives thought it sounded silly so they went in and they cut out all of Bela Lugosi's dialogue out of the movie so now you have a blind monster stumbling around with his arms in front of him but he doesn't talk and if you look at the movie you can see where he's supposed to be talking and they cut away quickly and it's really convoluted Glenn Strange who then has to play the monster next looks at that and goes well all right I guess I'm still blind I guess I'm still stumbling around with my arms in front of him which is the image most people have of the Frankenstein monster which was never done by Boris in his three turns as the monster. So with in that regard, I just think Glenn Strange did a great job of picking up what had come before him and making it work moving forward. Anyway, a couple other ones I want to just hit on very quickly. Brian asked me to watch Dracula in Istanbul. Under the circumstances, a fairly uh, straightforward retelling of the Dracula story. I would recommend it. It is on YouTube for a couple of reasons. One, I believe it's the first time that Dracula has actual canine teeth. Yes. Uh, which is important. But the other is there's uh, the scene where he's talking to Harker about, I want you to write three letters and I want you to post date the letters is so convoluted because he goes into explaining how the Turkish post office system works in such a way that the letters aren't going to get there. You need it's just this long scene of explaining why he needs to write these three letters. <laughs> and poor Harker is doing his best to keep up with that. That was the only reason I, I recommend. Uh, so that, that movie is based on a book called Kazliki Voivoda, which means um, the the, the the warrior prince and it was written in i want to say the 1920s or 30s i want to say 30s uh and it's the first book to equate dracula and vlad the impaler which mm -hmm. I, I come back to a couple times now but that's significant because uh it was a turkish book and the turks got that right away they immediately saw mm. the name dracula and like oh we know who we're talking about we we're talking guys. about that a-hole uh it was not till the 70s that what the 50s and the 70s that Western critics and uh, scholars started to equate the two. And then later when other scholars said, no, there, there's not really a connection there. But it's a fun story and it's part of canon now so we can all play around with it. But that wasn't what Bram Stoker was thinking of. Is that what you're saying? No, no, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't making Dracula uh, Vlad the Impaler. He got the name 
from Vlad the Impaler, surely, but not the deeds. Um, okay. He wasn't supposed to be Vlad the Impaler brought back to life. All right, I'm going to ask you both to do one final thing, and then we'll wrap it up for today, although I could talk to you about monsters all day long, and the fact that uh, I'd forgotten, Don, that you were back on the universe a lot makes <laughs> this even more perfect. If uh, listeners are going to watch one Dracula movie and one Frankenstein movie, what do you recommend? Don, you go first. They're only watching one, then it's got to be the 1931 Frankenstein uh, with Boris Karloff, of course. Because? Well, it's the, I think it has captured the uh, story of Frankenstein that keeps one toe sort of beautifully over the novel and the kind of original source material that I am so in love with, but also keeps the other foot firmly in a great film tradition. It is genuinely spooky and it holds so much of the imagery of any of the subsequent movies movies that you're only watching one so that's the one you get but if you do watch any more you've got this fantastic foundation for what is this story and who is this creature got it and brian for dracula i was tossing around in my head here whether to recommend nosferatu or the 1931 dracula and i think i'm gonna have to agree with dawn and say the 1931 for both of them because it would help a viewer who was new to the monsters understand where we got the archetypes we have now. Why, when you type an emoji into your phone, vampire, mm. you get someone who looks like with a tuxedo and the slick back hair. Or yes. if you type, I think, is there a Frankenstein emoji? There is, and he's green with bolts in his yeah. neck. Yeah. It, would, it mm-hmm. will help you understand why we have that image permanently implanted in our heads, even though maybe that's not the source material. We now understand yeah. the origins of it. And if I may, too, there's there's something about having the the lore as founded in these movies is necessary, frankly, to almost understand what happens later. I mean, I get very frustrated in 2022 if there is a movie about vampires that takes any time at all to explain to me what a vampire is. Unless you're breaking the rules of the vampire. For example, you know, like in Twilight, a vampire sparkles like a diamond when it's out in the sunshine and is the hottest thing ever. That's really great to know. I didn't know that about vampires. That wasn't necessarily true before, you know. But but you don't need to take a lot of time to be like... In fact, when you, when you do read Dracula, one of the things for me that I found very frustrating was the suspense of what is it with this guy? They were like, I don't know. He said we he said we couldn't bring garlic and they take all this time and you're kind of as a modern reader being like, because he's a fucking vampire. Move on. <laughs> like, we know this. We got this one. It's it's that's, shorthand. That, that's one, one snide thing I could say about the book is that there are times where Dracula's powers seem to be whatever his powers need to be to make this next scene creepy and move on to the next chapter. <laughs> he was oh. making it up as he went along. Yeah. 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 Thanks to Don Brody and Brian Forrest for accompanying me on this monstrous journey. Don hosts the enormously enjoyable podcast, History I'd Like to F***, and Brian runs the Toothpickings blog and vlog. You'll find links to both in the show notes. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. And if you haven't already, check out the companion to the books, Behind the Page, The Eli Marks Podcast. 
available wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for episode 107 of the Occasional Film Podcast, which was produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally.